So hello and welcome to the Ravens, a One Tree Hill podcast. I am Simon and I am here with my co-host Dom. Dom, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very good and very excited because we are joined again by set decorating royalty legend. The Steven Spielberg of set decorating is how I like to think of him. Matt Sullivan, (laughs) Matt, you're back. Thank you so much for joining us. How's it going? Fellas, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me again. Uh, This is uh, like a meeting of old friends. I I love being here to talk about this and uh, it's going to be a pleasure as always. Well, I do consider you a personal friend at this point, Matt. Dom will consider you a personal friend after this conversation, I'm sure. And we are really looking forward to the whole finale of this podcast is we're going to come out to Wilmington and go and look at all of the uh, locations and all of those things to with our Ravens and listeners. And we can't wait to buy you a couple of beers and, uh, you know, in person, you know, and and experience the wonders of Wilmington. So we're hoping to do that either next year or the year after, depending on when we actually finish the podcast. Right. Well, I look forward to that as well. I'm happy to show you around to everything that we can look at. And, um, you know, some things have changed in in many of our locations, um, but it'll still be very interesting for you to see where it was all done. And, you know, I can explain lots more about it in person when we're standing in the the place where everything took place that would be amazing um and two quick things i also just realized for anyone watching on youtube because we haven't done this in a while i moved house so i have a very boring background compared to what i used to have bear with me it will develop over time but also dom uh this is dom's first time uh meeting you matt because dom is we're he's watching in real time he's watching one episode a week so he is our first time viewer and we're currently midway through season six so we've just crossed the threshold of the uh like the 19 is it 1940s the 1940s episode that's kind of our barometer um so we do have to put in a warning to we have to be careful to not spoil dom uh for things post that period if he looks like you're going to i will I will stop you. Don't worry, Matt, because I know it must be more of a difficult memory for you as you know, you've worked on so many projects and it was a while ago now. Um, but for Dom and for anybody else that's uh, listening for the first time with you, Matt, go back through into the archives. This is Matt's third appearance, but also Matt was the set decorator or a part of the set decorating team and moving forward from season three all the way to the end of season nine of One Tree Hill, right? That is correct. As well as working on many other awesome projects that we can find, you know, on your IMDb page. Um, But One Tree Hill, Dawson's Creek as well, of course, that we we had that episode speaking about. But One Tree Hill still holds a special place in your career and in your heart. Can I say, Matt? You certainly can. That was uh, One Tree Hill was actually the show that I did for the longest length of time um worked with a slew of great people uh the actors the production team uh, my crew uh just everybody it was a very family-like environment and um 
it'll always hold a special place in my heart for sure. Well, and Dom, we we just got to that 40s episode um, in season six. And one of our first questions around that was, I mean, personally, how elaborate it was to be able to do that. Um, but we were questioning on our podcast. Do you know if, because that episode is so singular to the rest of the show, do you know if, and we know that Chad Michael Murray wrote it, do you know if he was given that parameter that it was that you can write this episode, but it has to be singular and not part of the pre-existing timeline? And that's why it was like so outlandish. Uh, I, I don't personally know what directives uh, Chad was given, but uh, I I can definitely say that that was a, a one-off, as we say, uh, you know, that you could watch that episode and if you didn't know the show, you could still get what's going on and understand all the characters that they play since they're not really playing themselves in that episode. Um, but I, I feel like it's a lot more fun if you do know the characters and you see how they translate into that world. Um, but yeah, it was definitely by all parties uh, thought of as a, you know, a separate piece that we were doing uh, just as a, a special edition for the audience. Um, everybody had a blast doing that, um, especially from an art department perspective and the costume designer and th that personnel, the, the hair and makeup people, you know, everybody really embraced doing that time period. And it was a ball for us that got to create the big uh, centerpiece set, which was in fact, the jazz club. Um, that was, it was probably the most fun we had on this series, I would have to say. And is it um, fair to assume that it was maybe one of the most expensive episodes to produce from like an art department perspective? Indeed, it it was. And uh, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I kind of knew you would probably bring that up. And it reminded me that I nearly got fired Uh as a result of how expensive that that episode was um you know we we uh as always in television you're fighting against what they call your pattern budget and uh, you know there was no way that that episode was going to fit our quote pattern um so alan hook and bill davis and i that alan is the production designer bill davis is the art director and i was the set decorator the three of us had to fight for the money to do everything in that club. Um, you know, you you look at the footage and you see all the neon work that we incorporated and the elaborate light fixtures. And, you know, they were wanting to get us to cut things. And uh, I remember Joe Davola, our uh, lovely producer who also directed that episode, um, he wanted to to cut things and I was passionately fighting in budget meetings for, you know, keeping them saying that we couldn't really shoot without like bar stools. He, he wanted me to cut the bar stools. And I'm like, Joe, we, 
we have to have bar stools. It's a bar. I mean, mm -hmm. people have to sit at the bar. You've got half a dozen scenes that take place at the bar. You can't not have stools. Found out later from Alan that uh, he considered firing me because I was so adamant about keeping the bar stools. I mean, passion passion was high all around because, you know, we, we had this monster of an episode and we didn't quite have the money for it. So something had to give. And I forget where the little cuts we did make were made. Uh, I think we stole actually from later episodes budgets. Um, but in the end, we all remained friends and uh, we, we got it made. And I think it, I think it still holds up pretty well. That's, that's such a great story. And uh, thank you for sharing that as well, because that must have been really difficult kind of going into a production meeting saying no, we absolutely need this because looking at the set from a, like a complete outsider's point of view and, and watching the episode, it, it looks genuine, authentic. And you must have just put so much effort into that side of it, as well as obviously needing the budget to be able to, you know, make it all work because it is all completely new stuff. It's not like you could recycle anything. It doesn't look like you recycled anything from sets you already had or were already using on the show. That's that's correct. It was all pretty much brand new. Uh, I I want to say maybe the tabletops that we used uh, for like the individual tables we had and we repainted for that. Um, but pretty much everything else was new or and or rented you know um we i rented the stage curtain that we wound up using that kind of beautiful empire style curtain that uh, reveals Haley james or whatever her i can't even remember what she was called no, you, in that you got episode. it you got it <laughs> um, but uh um that it was just such a beautiful set we we couldn't get done taking photos of it and uh, just we'd go in there and ask the electricians to turn all the lights on and just hang out once we had it finished because it was so pretty. Was there, was there any sort of direct influence on you for, for, for the set where it came from or was it just like, okay, let's think very 1940s, let's pick a color scheme and let's go with it. Or was there, um like a another show or film or anything that might like stood out to you that kind of drew an influence on on the design well that's a, that's a great question we didn't um we researched the era and we looked at a few old films um but we didn't want to emulate anything particularly i mean it's kind of vaguely like the cotton club um which also had a lot of neon and, um, you know, that kind of art deco look. Uh, but we we didn't want to uh, go too far down the road of trying to replicate anything. Alan Hook is a, a brilliant designer and, uh, you know, he kind of forged his own path with the design and I just tried to fill it with the best looking stuff that we could that, that fit that uh, grand scheme. Um, you, there's some great light fixtures in there. I, I don't know if you noticed the like sculptural fixtures with the women 
holding balls that light up, um, very Art Deco looking. Um, and the chandeliers, uh, just, I thought it all complemented the era. And, you know, the storyline is uh, kind of vaguely referencing uh, Casablanca, um, although the, our club doesn't really look anything like Rick's, but it's definitely more cotton clubby, I would say. Uh, but boy, what a blast we had. And it, re it really shows. I mean, the that episode, it stands out for many reasons, but in in terms of the production value, it really stands alone in in like its own uh, league, really, because it's so different to the show is actually quite small in a lot of ways. I know we're moving towards a lot grand, you know, grander things in these later seasons and, uh, you know, record labels and Brooke is like a, you know, a celebrity with fashion lines and things. But I mean, from the beginning, it's quite a small show. It's in a small town with a high school basketball team and it's all set around that. So to be here and to have such a big episode uh, or production wise is great. I, I was going to ask as this is your industry and your career when you watch movies like i don't know like titanic or something like that where you've got all of the uh set decorating that's so intricate to being historically accurate do you find yourself kind of like nitpicking when you're watching movies and tv shows like that of or applauding where you can think that that set decorating is really good like do you sort of see it with that filter uh, I do. I can't. I can't help but to view things that way. Um, you know, I'm always uh, impressed by my peers' ability to recreate historic things, especially, um, uh, or to create imaginary worlds. You know, um, things that happen in outer space or other worlds. Um, I find that all fascinating and. While I am kind of subconsciously looking at it all with a decorator's eye, uh, I am able to just kind of suspend my disbelief and go with the story. I mean, if if the story is good and the acting is done well and the directing, if it's a well done film or television show, I'm all in. I I can put my design sense into the background and just enjoy what I'm watching because, you know, the reason I got into this business is because I love movies. I mean, I loved them from a very young age and uh, still do. So I'm, I can separate those two aspects. Do you find that when watching your own work back, are you able to still keep that disbelief? So if you was to watch it, that episode of one tree hill now or would you is too much because you remember actually being there and you actually put your you know put all of the props and things wherever they needed to be it's that's another great question it's it's a little easier now to watch my own work i mean you know it, when it's from years past um when I see something for the first time, like shortly after we finished it or, you know, which might be a year or more sometimes, but um, the first time I ever see something, I'm 
hypercritical and I, you know, I nitpick my own work uh, horribly and I don't, I don't, I'm not able to suspend my disbelief and just go with the story. I'm very much looking at it with my decorator's eye, but I just recently rewatched the jazz club episode um, because I knew we were going to talk about it. And, you know, however many years, almost like, what was that? 2008. Yeah. I think around there, maybe seven, 2007, eight around there. Okay. So, you know, 15 years, uh, that allowed me to kind of just, forget about what I did on it and just go with the flow and, and watch it for what it is. Um, it was more fun for sure. Watching it that way than uh, it would have been the first time I watched it. And do, do you, do you, I was just going to say, do, do you spot anything um, in the episode? So when you rewatched the episode, did you spot anything in it and think, or oh, I could have done that differently or that, that could have been better placed over there. Or was there anything in there that you thought, well, I've given myself a bit of critique here. and um... Right. Um, on this particular episode, you know, I really didn't see anything that I felt like I should have done differently. Um, I did wish we had more wider shots of the club and uh, like Haley's dressing room. Um, I thought that could have been lit a little more brightly because there was a lot of detail in her dressing room that you can't see because it's, it's pretty shadowy in there. Um, but, uh, you know, not to, not to pat myself on the back or anything, but I, I think we, we pulled that episode off pretty well. So I don't, yeah. I don't know that change too much about it. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, we'll virtually pat you on the back as well. Cause it's a, it's a, <laughs> Beautiful looking episode. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm not trying to be uh, cocky or anything, but I, I think between Alan and Bill and I and the, the whole team of the art department, I mean, my crew is, is and was fantastic. And the construction and paint department were both par excellence. And uh, we, we felt like that was a home run. For sure, for sure. I have I have three points. One point, one statement, two questions. The statement is it aired, I just had to check. It aired in November two thousand and eight. Um, so Hi. yeah, you were right. I was wrong. I'll get I'll get a lot of hate in that in the comments or on our Patreon. I'm sure for not knowing the exact dates. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm human. Um, but the uh to take it from one great piece of set decorating to another um james vanderbeek who obviously you you uh, had a working relationship with in dawson's creek has just recently reappeared in one tree hill in a wonderful uh character that's the complete opposite of his character in dawson's creek in being like a a drug-fueled uh <laughs> egomaniac director and it's very humorous and it's so funny Dom and I particularly loved the set decoration in his office where Lucas has gone to visit him in LA. And that's where 
and I was emailing you about this, like the trouser hound poster, and he's got like American Pie two posters behind him and all of that. I mean, it's it's wonderful and brilliant, and we love all those little touches that are so subtle. And even in an episode, two or three episodes after that, Lucas and Peyton are babysitting Jamie and Andre, like the two little kids, and they pull out some DVDs to say, hey, we've got some movies to watch. And I like freeze framed it. And you could see that the top movie was Trouser Hound, which was like, you know, like the fake movie that you guys had made. It was such like a great little hidden touch uh, so do, do you remember doing that and having lots of fun with putting in, you know, little touches like that for people that are going to be as fanatical as Dom and I are about freeze framing and checking all of these details? Yeah, yeah. Um, we did do a lot of that. And that is mostly the product of uh, Alan Hook and Bill Davis. Um, you know, they... They love creating stuff like that. I, I do too, but um, that's more their job to uh, create the, you know, cleared clearance for real pictures like American Pie and, uh, you know, any other actual film. You typically have to pay a fee for that. Um, and, you know, given our limited budget, constraints uh they didn't want us to do a whole lot of that we we did get some product placements of you know sodas or you know various different types of items um and we could clear for use things that were owned i believe by warner brothers because we were a warner brothers production um that was maybe a little bit easier to clear but for the most part things that we would maybe see up close bill and alan created those and they had a lot of fun with it um as you can imagine and as evidenced by trouser hound which <laughs> is a ridiculous title honestly but uh <laughs> i'm glad you got such a kick out of it and uh, I, i'm working on some imagery for you <laughs> thank you uh, i yeah, it ne is needed. It needs to be on a wall somewhere. I'm sure my wife will love that. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, such a such a nice wholesome title. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, typically with um, I mean I don't know. You, you obviously you don't need to say any specifics or anything. But are we right in thinking that some of these episodes um? the budget for these things are we talk we were talking about on the podcast for like that episode with the jazz club we're talking like hundreds of thousands of dollars right we're not talking like sixty thousand dollars we're talking like that might cost i don't know like 400 300 400 000. we're talking those kind of budgets right yes um yes and i Honestly, I don't remember exactly what our pattern was um, per episode, but I think, I mean, and you're talking about the the entire production, like not just from an art department standpoint. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, of course, wasn't privy to uh, that budgetary figure because, uh, you know, I'm not one of the producers and they don't they don't typically want 
regular department heads to know what they have budgeted for other departments. Um, but I do know that um, our art department budget for that episode was probably three to four times what an average episode was. Um, that's hence the, the fight I referenced earlier in the budget meeting uh, with our producers. They, uh, you know, they wanted to give us what we needed to make it happen and everybody wanted it to look great. Um, you know, and in one instance, Joe Davola, who kind of uh, fought me a little bit on those bar stools, um, he wanted, well, there's a sequence on a bridge that we used to shoot a lot. Um, it's actually the bridge that uh, Lucas dribbles the basketball over at the in the opening of the show, like the title sequence. Um, but he wanted us to fill that bridge with twinkle lights and what we call carna carnival lights. Um, he said he wanted that to be visible from space. He wanted <laughs> that much lighting on it. And if you look at that episode and you see that bridge sequence uh, where one of the girls is dancing on the bridge, um, we delivered. We gave them all the lights we had. Uh, at certain points on that show, we we considered building backpacks with like some trellis on them and twinkle lights on them for the actors to wear so that there would just always be pretty twinkle lights behind their heads. Because anytime we shot at night, boy, we had we had those lights out there. And and did you did you we did you say how many you had? Do you do you remember how like or, or like what length of like cable you had for it or how many bulbs you had or well my my lead man says uh I asked him this question earlier and Adam Cameron, who's my lead man, said he thinks we had about 1,200 uh, individual bulbs on that bridge. Uh, I, I honestly think it was more than that. Um, I think his memory is a little faded. Um, he is the one that had to oversee the installation of all of them. And we had lifts on that bridge, parking high up in the air to wrap every square inch of it. So. Um, he should know, but uh, it was a lot, my friend, a lot. And it, I, I'll bet it was visible from space. It, I mean, <laughs> you could see it from blocks and blocks away uh, on the ground. Amazing. I mean, we've got some pretty hardcore, dedicated One Tree Hill lover listeners. Uh, and I'm almost certain we could convince one or two of them to try and count them. If you know, rewatch the episode, pause it, and get counting, and then we can get you a closer figure. <laughs> I, I would love to hear the results of that. <laughs> we'll try. Anyone, any of our ravens, get, give it a go. Try and count those those bulbs on the bridge. <laughs> yeah, to, right. hopefully there's a shot that's wide enough that that will show you. Keep them yeah. all in in shot, or you might have to piece together a couple of shots to to get an accurate count. I think they're crazy enough to do it. <laughs> we have we have the people to do that for sure. <laughs> uh, to switch lanes for a, a second, 
we have just gone through Nathan's slam ball phase, shall we call it, uh, in his progression. I mean, slam ball, something that I guess wasn't wasn't and maybe isn't particularly well known outside of the realms of One Tree Hill or outside of the realms of people that are into that sport. Um, that must have provided some challenges in terms of, or did it, or did you just sort of treat it like it was basketball in terms of the set dressing slash American football, but inside? Well, uh, it's, that's also interesting. Um, you know, at the time when we were doing that slam ball was a thing that was gaining popularity in, in the United States. Um, and there were various leagues, uh, around the country that were really trying to promote that. Um, it kind of fizzled. Um, and, but just the other day, like less than a week ago, I was flipping channels and I saw a slam ball match being played, which, floored me. I was like, I, I hadn't even thought of it since we did our stint with it on One Tree. Um, so apparently it's still around and people are still playing it. Um, when we were first presented with that, uh, we were like, oh, man, what are we going to do? How are we going to pull this off? Because uh, this is so elaborate. But turns out there were a couple of companies that had traveling slam ball shows essentially and they could bring in the court with all the you know trampoline spots uh and set it up and you know do demonstrations or you know bring it to your civic center uh in whatever town you lived in and set it up and do an exhibition so we um hired one of those companies to come in and set it up for us. And so we had an actual slam ball court, uh, on, on stage, I believe it was, um, can't remember if we set it up at one of the high school gyms we shot at regularly, or if it was on our studio lot, I'm pretty sure it was on the lot. And, um, you know, we, we kind of shot around on it ourselves set dressers would mm -hmm. i mean everybody wanted to dunk on it come on <laughs> of course of course <laughs> we actually had one of our uh dear raven listeners and friends uh sarah was actually uh an extra or a background performer uh with her husband uh she's actually also in the in the industry as well but she was there just as a fan of one tree hill and uh yeah she said it was on a studio because she was saying that the front they had the crowd one side and then the other side there was not nothing there it was just all of the cameras and everything and uh it was like the the sequence where nathan gets pushed through the glass through like the plexiglass i don't know if you remember that but or like the sugar glass or whatever it was yeah but, candy glass yeah so uh, yeah there you go yeah, slamble you it was cool that was um uh, you know, an interesting path for Nathan to follow. Um, I mean, we all wanted him to make the NBA, but, um, <laughs> but we don't know and we will not know. So, cause Dom doesn't know. So who knows? Oh, right. right. 
Um, does it happen? Does it not? Does he break his leg? Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, we when he played slam ball, we were hoping that would be the thing that launched him into the NBA, like literally launched. But um, right. he still had. Yeah, well, he ends up starring. He takes a career change, goes into acting and stars in the sequel to Trouser Hound, Trouser Hound 2, The Return of the Hound. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, uh, and and then we, there's also been a lot of, um, in these later seasons, oh, we're in New York and we're walking through a New York street and, oh, we're here and there. And I assume a lot of that is we're not in New York. We're still in Wilmington, but there's a yellow taxi cab to make it look like New York. I mean, was that was that the case? There's a lot of making this look like Central Park and that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, we uh, we did not ever go to New York. Um, I think... No, that was Dawson's Creek. Um, <laughs> at certain times, those two shows blend together for me a little bit. Um, but uh, no, whenever we you think you're in New York, it's still Wilmington, North Carolina, and we've just uh, chosen our angles wisely and uh, done the decorating or the design work that's necessary to sell that to the audience when it comes to individual characters particularly in the earlier seasons so you might have answered this before um when you've had your uh like conversations with simon but i'm not allowed to listen because of spoilers so um <laughs> i can't wait until i can listen but with the individual characters particularly in early seasons in their rooms for example Peyton is a classic example kind of captures her um like essence and her personality just from looking at her room and the same for uh lucas you kind of get this wannabe steinbeck hemingway kind of vibe from him and nathan the sports star and it is it is it easy to kind of encapsulate someone's personality with a room and with objects or do, do you find okay we've got a bit of a challenge here because this person's a bit you know moody and a bit you know um somber and we need to kind of bring that out in the room somehow that is um it's not easy first of all but um it is the essence of what set decorating is um and and production design for that matter uh you know we always try to make the living space whatever it is if it's the bedroom or the living room or you know even say a, a hospital nursing station or whatever it is, we always try to dig into what the character is and what their sensibilities are, what their interests are, you know, their personality type. And we strive to emulate that in the set. You know, uh, my, my kind of motto is that we don't, I don't make, I don't decorate sets, I create environments. Um, I like to make every set look as if it's a living space where whoever resides there just left. Like, oh, you just missed them. They were, they were just here. Um, so giving that kind of 
character thought to uh, things is is a big part of what we do. Um, and does it ever does, does makes it ever it so much more interesting that way? Does it ever drum up like disagreements? So, like, say someone comes to you and says, "Okay, this is the plan. This is what we're going to do with the room, and this is, you know, kind of what we expect at the end of it. Whoever's designed it or created it." And do you do you ever find that you go, "But that doesn't fit the character's personality, and this is kind of how it should look." Is is there is there the option to kind of push back a little bit and and put your own spin on it that fits the character better, or what you feel like fits the characters better? There, there is uh, a lot of give and take in that regard. Um, you know, the uh, typically the showrunner in television, the showrunner, or in a movie setting, the director typically, and or the writer, um, they might have some strong opinions about each of the characters and what they would or wouldn't be into, and how their sets should you know, be imbued with their character. Uh, but a lot of times they, they lean on us for that. You know, they, they've got the big picture in mind and they, you know, want those details to come from us. And, uh, you know, we, they trust that we're professionals and we're thinking about it and that what we're going to do will make sense. Um, you know, you can't, <clears throat> it can't be arbitrary. You know, you can't put, I, I like there always to be a reason for everything to be on my sets. Um, I mean, you know, why is there a chair? Well, they, somebody needs to sit down occasionally. So that's why there's a chair, but uh, you know, why is it this chair? Why does it look this way? And um, why is this character's bulletin board on their wall kind of neatly organized and has very few things on it while this other characters has stuff falling off of it and hung on it and it's crooked and it's just over, you know, images are over the top of one another. Um, you know, you, you always want to, to really think about whose space it is and how they live. So, and that's that's the interesting part about it, you know. I mean, if it was just, uh, you know, we need this kind of furniture here and we need to, they got to sit here because of this camera angle. So we just need a square object there for them to sit on. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't be much fun and it wouldn't be very interesting to look at. Yeah, definitely. Just like I'm going to pop down to Ikea throw some furniture in and mm -hmm. job jobs are good. At. <laughs> yeah. Now, sometimes that might be appropriate because you know? <laughs> some people do live like that. Um, mm. But you, you always got to, you know, when, once we read the script and kind of break it down, that's when we get the, the thoughts about who these people are. And occasionally you don't get any of that from the script. You know, it's just, this person and then you've like oh well we have to create a backstory for this person because the writer hasn't given us one and you know we can't just do a, a blank space it's it's got to have personality so uh that's when we really dig in and try to 
get the clues from the script as to what this person might be. And uh, that sometimes that might be a position where you get it wrong and you get pushed back later, you know, from the showrunner. Um, and casting too, you know, that's a, um, I'm glad you brought this up because sometimes you're working very quickly in, in television, especially, you know, there's, there's not the time in the schedule to just methodically think things out. I mean, you, set's got to be ready in two days, you know, and we just got the script. So we're furiously trying to put it together and give all this detail and backstory. And, uh, you know, then you find out uh, casting, uh, you know, maybe it's a, <laughs> maybe it's a name that's kind of unisex and you're thinking all along that it's a woman, but it turns out it's a man. And uh, you're like, oh my God, I totally got that character wrong. Or, you know, you're thinking it's a, a black woman and turns out it's a, a Australian girl or, uh, you know, whatever. You, you don't get to know about the casting because very often it's not done until you're about to go to camera. So you might get surprised with who's actually playing the part. So there's, there's a lot that goes into it. And uh, we got to walk that line and, and, you know, really try to make the sets live as the characters they, that inhabit them. And, and you, you've done a lot of, um, well, I think with, with the we've had some of the what we'd call the psychos of One Tree Hill recently. We've had Psycho Derek, we've had Nanny Kerry, and then most recently we've had Xavier X, who uh assaulted Brooke and uh killed uh Quentin Fields. And all three of them have had their like lairs, so to speak. You know, you had Psycho Derek had like all of the pictures up on the wall uh, in like his motel room. And Nanny Kerry had the house in the middle of like, you know, the, the cornfields where she kidnapped uh, Dan. And then we had Xavier had his, you know, sort of broken down house where he kidnapped um, Sam at one point. And not only do I think that the set decorators are really the unsung heroes, it's the same with um, with the music as well, because like you said, they paint it paints the picture. And we had uh, John Nordstrom on the podcast as well. He did the composing of the music for One Tree Hill. And uh, again, it's like his work and you and your team's work really uh without it it would completely take all of the gravity away for us to be able to have that suspension of disbelief um so do you like did were you ever did you feel that way about the music side of things as well you know that there's that kind of uh unspoken uh mutual appreciation because both of you are bringing elements to the to the scenes that aren't uh just you know the the acting yeah, you know, um, of course, when we're putting our sets together and we're actually in production filming, we have no idea what the music is going to be. Um, you know, we don't 
uh, we don't ever hear that. And they didn't uh, very often uh, call out what the music was going to be. You know, the, the, obviously on the, the soundtracks from the show, there's a lot of hit songs and, um, you know, mainstream music. And I mean, the showrunner Mark Schwann was very into music and he was always trying to, to get uh, new artists on the show, you know, at least had their songs played on the show. And I, I think he and the rest of the music team did an outstanding job of getting stuff that really fit the mood of the stories we were telling. Um, and it was always just great, kind of a thrill to see what we shot then set to this particular music and see how they work together. And, you know, the <clears throat> music goes a long way towards setting the mood and the tone. Um, and uh, I, I thought that visually and orally, uh, everything worked beautifully on that show. Definitely, definitely. Um, and then speaking of the visuals, you uh, sent over some pictures uh, for us so that we can look at. So I'm going to bring them up on the screen now. So if you're listening to the audio version of this, then please head over to our YouTube, which I believe is called The Ravens Podcast. But uh, there'll be links to it in the description. You'll be able to find it. Um, and then you'll be able to to see these pictures as well. So the first one we have here is a picture of uh, of Trick. And we've got, are these the infamous bar stools? Uh, no, those those bar stools uh, are, of course, this is Club Trick, which was one of our all-time standing sets. So, uh, in fact, those those bar stools were purchased even before my time, because Trick was an ongoing set throughout the series. Um, the bar stools that we fought about were in the jazz club for mm -hmm. the '40s. And but so that is our well-loved uh, Trick set. Um, lot of different action happened there. And is the is the the roof is like this on purpose, like or so you could be able to hang the hang the lights from it and have more sort of autonomy over like if you want needed to put like a camera higher up and things like that. Uh yes and no. That um that's an actual building. Club trick was built on the uh second floor of an old brick building downtown Wilmington. And uh, so that's the natural ceiling that was there, which, you know, we augmented with uh, a pipe and uh, materials as needed to hang lighting from or, um, you know, bounce cards or whatever. But the ceiling is what the ceiling of the building was for the most part. And you know it's still there. Like they, uh, I don't know if they recreated it or if they purchased the 
the props or set decorating but it's now run by i believe it's a charitable organization or non-profit called friends with benefit and they put on conventions and uh things events with the cast in the actual trick building that's that is true they have a, a shop in there that is open I, I believe on saturdays for a few hours um where you can buy memorabilia and merchandise t-shirts stuff like that um and uh, i i haven't been in there yet um I, I keep meaning to go by and just see but it's like i say it's, i think it's only open for a couple hours on saturdays and maybe not every saturday so at some point i need to get by there and see just how much of the old trick stuff they have but yeah, that that was an awesome uh, space that we used. And here's an interesting tidbit that very few people know. Um, that same building and the same area that Trick is in was also used on Dawson's Creek for a restaurant that Pacey worked at called Civilization. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Crazy. Uh, so yeah, that's a a little factoid. Uh, same space. Crazy. Look, so the, there's so many details in here that are just like from watching an episode, you kind of it just seems normal. But even like the danger combustible liquid sign that's just in the middle of the bar there. There's these things that you sort of notice. But now I can just sit and look at it. I can really take it all in. It's so good to have this. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah. Yeah. My pleasure. Um, we we loved that set. Um, we, well, I say we loved it. We loved it and we hated it. Um, <laughs> it was not practical in the sense that there was no running water uh, behind that bar. So that was always a big pain in the neck. Um, we had to take all the glassware away and wash it um, back at the studio. Or yeah, I think sometimes we took it to a couple of restaurants that we had friends at and they would run our dishes through the dishwasher. Um, and uh, we had to provide our own power. So if the, if the generator wasn't there, uh, we had very little light in there to work with uh, because the the building had power, but they didn't want, uh, it was only on the first floor, I believe. Um, so it was always a bit of a Megillah working in there because I, they kept it so dark. Um, and we had to redo it so many times for like different events like, you know, uh, there's a Halloween party in this episode at Trick, and there's a Valentine's Day party at Trick, and now this band is performing there, so we need to add their elements. So um, we we worked there a lot. And um, I mean, it, it, it lent itself beautifully to, to working because it, it was so spacious, you know, that, there, uh, 
it was easy to get the cameras in there and maneuver them uh, because there was so much space. It's cool set. Does it make you feel? How does it make you feel that? Some of these props and things that you put in. So I like, for example, there's like plastic uh, cups that have the trick logo on that are just used, you know, as props in the background. And there must have been tons of them, but they they sell on eBay, like the actual ones from the set. They can sell for like $30 each for a cup. And then then there's other things where there's, I don't know, um, a, a dress or something that uh Sophia Bush might have worn or something in one episode in one scene it could go for like a thousand dollars you know or all kinds of things that these items that would cost not that much money in real life but if they've been featured in an episode of One Tree Hill or a TV show are now worth tons of money and I am not one to speak because I'm someone that collects this stuff and has these things um you know and and love them and I'm I love them because it feels like you're owning part of the show. It's like you have part of the story. Um, but how does it make you feel as the person that, you know, had a hand in uh, placing it? Well, it makes me wish I had saved some of those cups. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, for 30 bucks a piece. Um, it, it makes, it makes me feel good that people want that stuff. Um, you know, it's uh, it's not unusual for me to still have people reaching out to me asking, where did I get this or how did I do that? I mean, hey. the show's been off the air now for years, but, uh, you know, not six weeks don't go by, but somebody emails me out of the blue and asks me about some aspect of either One Tree Hill or Dawson's Creek. It's it's uh, usually me, isn't it, Matt? (laughs) (laughs) Often enough, it is. Um, (laughs) Lots of trouser hand requests. (laughs) There are other folks who, you know, will... One of the most recent ones, and uh, Don, maybe you shouldn't listen to this for... A quick second. I can unplug. I'll unplug. Unplug for a second, Dom. He's out. He can't hear. Okay. Um, Just recently, somebody asked me about the um, this rocking chair that I had in the nursery at Brooke's house. Um, Like you know, once she has the twins, um, they were wondering where I got this rocking chair, and. I mean, I, I told them about what an unusual thing that somebody just totally out of the blue trying to find that exact rocking chair. Um, so things things of that nature come up all the time still, at Amazing. least three or four times a year. That's awesome. Let me beckon him back. Come back, Dom. Come back. Um. Yeah, I mean it's it, and it just it just gives light to what you've created that people either you know want want to have it from like a collector's memorabilia standpoint, or it's just like oh, I love that item. I would love to to own that as well. Um, it's great. Let me. I'm just trying to find the next picture. Oh, there we go. So there's another angle. Oh, I love the lighting on the 
stairs. That's so cool. Hmm. Yeah. Like this just uh, looks like a cool bar. Like this looks like a place you want to go and have a have a couple beers after work. Absolutely. It uh we always wished it was a functioning club. Uh and I I think we had a rap party in there one year. Um it was again, it was difficult from the standpoint that there was no running water. And so the bar, as practical as it looks, it just wasn't. Um, you know, we would bring in soda guns and uh, have soda canisters and uh, that type of thing and beer that could actually run through the taps. But uh, but you, you're constantly surprised by how much you need running water in a bar right. slash restaurant. Um, but just to go back to your previous question about, you know, the memorabilia, uh, it, it really makes me happy to know that, uh, I was a part of something that achieved such popularity and such lasting popularity that people still want to acquire elements that we provided. Um, that's, that makes you feel good. Well, I've said it. I've said it before. Um, I will say it again. The I, I have a lot of these things. Like I have, um, like I have Paul Johansson's uh, like Ravens jacket um, and all these other things. But they're all things that I had, you know, that I've paid for, and a lot of the times have been very, you know, really expensive. But my honestly, my most prized possession that I have are those posters that you sent me um, of. Uh, well, Dom, Dom hasn't even been able to see them because they don't happen yet. But, you know, I won't name them, but the two posters you sent me and a big part of the reason is I've, I explained this before. I tried to buy them from someone who had like the originals and they were trying to they were trying to charge me like two thousand dollars for this poster. And I was like, it's just it's just ridiculous. Like, I can't pay that as like i was asking can i just have like a copy of it maybe or could you just take a really good picture and i'll just print it or whatever i just want it as a fan you know and right. and then when i spoke to you you just sent them to me uh like actually went printed them and sent them to me and i was saying well can i pay for the shipping can i pay for this you're like no it's a gift and that means more to me than all any of the other things because it was like a kind act uh but it was also it just it just shows the kind of person you are, but they will always be so special to me. Um, so I can't remember what the point of this was, but just to say, I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're so welcome, Simon. And uh, it was my pleasure. Um, you know, like I said, I, I really appreciate and uh, I'm thankful for having been involved with something that has touched so many people and meant so much to so many folks. Uh, I'm glad I could be a part of making that happen. Uh, it's the best. I love it. I look forward to showing it, showing it to Dom when, when he gets, when we get there, but actually I don't think they're actually there to like season nine. So <laughs> Yeah. That's, um, you know, uh, definitely, post school years and uh they're deep in career world then 
For sure. Definitely. Definitely. Oh, look, there's the trick sign. That's there awesome. It oh, it looks great. It just looks yeah. brilliant. Oh, it's amazing. We've got oh yeah, the, the stage. stage. I'd love okay. to have that that trick, that lucite trick sign. This I wish one. I did have it. Yeah. I think well, I think well, unless it's a replica, they, I think they have that in I've seen it they, on they, pictures. They made it well. They might have yeah. it. I think sometimes they rent some of the actual props for their events from other places that have them, like from other like stores and places that have them. Oh wow, there it is. So there's oh, the, yeah, the jazz club. That. That's crazy. Even the the detail on the doors and you know the lights, like you were mentioning earlier, are just fantastic. So yeah, our good. construction team built those doors. So cool, and the floor, like the the wooden floor, the light, yeah, it's very like Gatsby like. It's awesome. Yeah. Can Can you make that image any bigger, Simon? Um, I'm sure I can. The other ones, the trick photos showed up. Oh, nice yeah. and big. Um, oh whoops. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome, and the light, the lighting around the edging, around the doors. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, and those nice deco wall sconces and the chandeliers. Uh, did it hurt to have to take this down afterwards? <laughs> it did. It did. We were just, you know, obviously the rest of the show can't be set in the 1940s, but um, we were really bummed that we could only use it for that one episode because it was such a pretty, pretty space. Such a shame that like other productions couldn't use it. Like, let's find a TV show that is set in the forties and let them <laughs> let them have it. Yeah, marvelous yeah. Miss Mabel, Maisel, Mabel, Maisel. That's in the forties, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sure this would translate. Oh my God, are those uh. bar stools? Yeah, <laughs> there they are. There they are. Now imagine that bar without any stools. It wouldn't be yeah. right. Yeah. Just... Well. And you, and a good a uh, good few amount of scenes happen there as well, right? Like Nathan slams someone's head into the bar there, or I think doesn't he? And I yeah. love the I love the like uh, coving in the back as well. Uh huh. That's that's part of Alan's design. Uh, and the railings, the uh, mm-hmm. wrought iron railings. It's all. And so what how long do you think it took took to build this? <laughs> Not very long. Um couple weeks. Wow. Um, I mean again in episodic television there is just no time for dawdling. Uh <laughs> we probably from Stage floor to finished set was probably two and a half weeks. Crazy. That's amazing. Did, did you ever have any areas like don't lean on that part of the bar because it's not supported by anything and we can't afford, we don't have the time to like rebuild <laughs> it. So like telling um, like Sophia Bush, she can't put her elbows on the bar or something like that. <laughs> um, no, we didn't. <laughs> I, I don't recall having any uh, 
spots like that on that set. I mean, that certainly does come up sometimes where, you know, you, you can't lean against this wall because it's, um, it's muslin instead <laughs> of uh, Luan. But uh, I, I don't recall anything like that on that set. I think it was all pretty practical. Pretty Again, steady. that's there's another bar that had no running water. Um, <laughs> but, but that's to be expected when you build it on stage. Mm. Um, yeah, so amazing. Beautiful stuff. Like even the marble as well. Yeah, that's great. So this this yeah, isn't is awesome. this is this like wood that's made to look like marble or something? Exactly. That's a paint mm. job. Uh Peter Durand was our uh lead scenic painter in those days and he was awesome. Uh, yeah, that's phenomenal. Oh, and these are the lights you were talking about. Yeah. I wish I had a closer sh had sent you a closer shot of those. Maybe um oh yeah there you yeah, go they're yeah they're really cool i'm so yeah. i'm so disappointed i'm so disappointed in my parents for choosing to live here in the uk and not in <laughs> wilmington so i couldn't attend the uh because you had the I, I you had the big um auction at the end right with all of like the props and everything like i would have just did. gone broke i would have just bought everything <laughs> Maybe maybe it's a good thing your parents did live there then. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. might have bankrupted them. <laughs> yeah. Like, Dad, I need this, please. Now <laughs> <laughs> oh, that there's Michael. Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah, we're back to trick now. Uh, even this detail on the floor here. Yeah, I think that this was the last brilliant. I think that was oh, the last one. That's the stage. Um, your perspective there is you're actually on the stage at Trick, and those panels on the stage lit up different colors. Ah, so cool, so cool. Love it. Well, that I think that was the last one. Thank you for sharing those, and uh, yeah, it's so cool to see. But uh, to talk about. Um, the industry now we know that there are um currently here in july in 2023 for anyone that's listening you know back if you're in the future listening to us in the past <laughs> then uh we know that there's these strikes going on and we know what we know we know bits about it from from the news and everything and social media but i mean how how is it affecting you with your with your current work um yeah what's that what's your perspective on it well, my current work is no work at all. Uh, the Both the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild are on strike, as you mentioned, um, and have been the writers since May, uh, May 1st, and the writers since, or the uh, actors rather, since the end of June. And <clears throat> as a result, nearly all production in the States is shut down at this time. Um, and it's been a year where these strikes were anticipated. Um, it looked like they were going to happen. And so production, at least in the, um, on the East coast of the U S has been very slow all year leading up to the strikes. And now there's just 
almost nothing at all. Um, my crew and I, as well established as we are in the industry, we haven't worked all year. Uh, so 2023 has been a disastrous year for us um, here in Wilmington. There's there's only been one production in Wilmington this year, which we were not a part of, and that got shut down uh, when the actors strike happened. So uh, it's it's really problematic for those of us that make our living from the film industry. I'm not going to lie. Uh, there are thousands and thousands of people out of work across the country. Um, and some folks like myself who have been well established in the business, you know, we are maybe positioned better financially than a lot of younger folks or people who are newer to the business. Uh, it's just when your livelihood is threatened in that way, it's a scary time. And um, we all understand that there's, there's, points to be made on both sides. Um, you know, the, the writers and the actors, they need fair contracts. They, the ones they have now are not fair. They don't take into account the, the way the whole industry has endured a paradigm shift uh, here with the advent of streaming and uh, the fact that uh, so much is done through the internet now and not through broadcast and that uh, movie theaters have have really seen a, a, a loss to viewership accessing projects that way. Um, so those points have to be addressed. Uh, you know, the artificial intelligence aspect has to be addressed and uh, and controlled as far as what its influence over writing and image and likeness, uh, how those things could be manipulated with artificial intelligence. And at the same time, you know, everyone understands that some of these production companies and studios have had a tough time too adapting to the new models of doing business with streaming and lack of theater going and you know you can see both sides of it uh but the fact is that the studios have to develop better contracts uh to meet the needs of the the creative people that really are the driving force um you know the the writers directors actors we crafts people Without all of our input, there is no film industry. There is no television industry. So treating all of us, all of them fairly is has got to happen. Uh, so I really hope that cooler heads will prevail and that, uh, you know, the studios will give in a way that makes uh, moving forward suitable for everybody. It's it's a tough time, Simon. It really is. Well, and I think that was well well said in terms of because uh, I think that the the focus is on the actors and the writers and the creative people, like you said. But there are so many 
people like yourself and other people that work behind the scenes that uh don't receive you know residual income um from you know shows and movies and things and like you said there are people that are out of work so it's really difficult and um like you said also that to want to stand with people so they get what's right um but also want people to be able to continue to earn a living um especially when it's like contract work and so you're relying on um you know having those work opportunities so yeah i mean we really hope also that things get to a a good resolution and the ai stuff is just scary like it's really mm. scary like it, just on a whole global front of what that means for the future um so yeah but i think you articulated it perfectly like i would only be butchering if i was to continue to speak <laughs> well i i don't think that's true but um yeah when you think about how many different i mean all you have to do is look at the end credits from a film or a television show to see how many people are affected by a shutdown um i mean grips electricians carpenters hair and makeup people uh, wardrobe people set deck special effects i mean the list goes on and on and on endlessly um all the all the digital artists i mean these days you watch a movie like the new Indiana Jones and you see like literally hundreds of technicians who are doing, you know, um, digital art, art, uh, visual effects and stuff. I mean, a lot of those people actually are probably still working because there's projects that, uh, are, have been shot and are in post-production now. And that's where a lot of their work comes in. But ultimately, if it doesn't get solved, it's going to affect literally everyone in the industry. And uh, these are, you know, people are going to start losing their homes and uh, their apartments and uh, have their cars repossessed. And, you know, there is absolutely no reason for greed to be the reason that that occurs. I mean, there's got to be a meeting of the minds that reaches a sensible contract that everybody can live with. And it, if people on the one side or the other say it's impossible, that's crap because it can be done. The, the powers that be on both sides just have to meet, discuss with level heads and get it figured out. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's hope it's resolved soon for, you know, it's in everyone's best interest that works in the industry. And, you know, soon enough, it's going to affect the viewer as well, because we'll, there'll just be no content, uh, you, you know, no new stuff coming out, but mostly um, people's livelihoods are at stake um, and it needs, needs resolving. It's just people at the top need to make those decisions and, and, you know, help support, you know everybody else in the industry and and make those decisions quickly because it's it's just greed on their part particularly um where the money sits with them and they get to to keep it rather than uh do the right thing and and share it responsibly right on share it well, fairly but to to bring it to uh 
to show our appreciation again we just have to say that um you know your work and contribution to the show is obvious and outstanding and we really appreciate it and we also just really appreciate uh you contributing to our podcast because uh it's wonderful to speak to you as a person but and it's just wonderful to get the insight as well but also for us to be able to say as people that really do appreciate movies and tv i mean our whole podcast is around movie and tv and dom and i grew up you know as best friends obsessed with movie and tv and it's something that bonds people um that we're just so grateful for for your work and its output and yeah and thank you as always for giving up your time to uh you know to talk to us about it and we you know that this isn't the end right you know that this we're on a <laughs> continual journey it's like every you know every three four five months we need you back to continue on with uh you know we're finding out all of these uh tidbits so yeah thank you as always we appreciate it i'll i'll keep coming back as long as you'll have me and uh as long as i don't bore your audience to tears um i'm i'm happy to do it i enjoy it and um just a, a little side note, I've got a, I actually do have a movie coming out called Sun Coast. Uh, it should be out. Well, I don't know, given the strike situation, I'm not sure how that affects the release date of it, but it's called Sun Coast. It's got Woody Harrelson and Laura Linney in the cast and um, it should be coming out soon. So uh, anybody who's a fan of my work should, uh, should check it out. It's going to be definitely. good. Well, yeah, we'll be there. Definitely. Well, may maybe when that comes out, uh, Dom and I will watch it, and then we you can come back and talk to us about it if if you'd be willing to. That'd be great. Sure, sure. As you like it. Um, it's always a pleasure, um, and I I hope I can do another show in the future that. Uh, uh, lives up to the longevity and the um, uh, popularity of One Tree. I'm sure Matt, you will. If you could, if you could slide your way onto Star Trek, that would be amazing for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dude, I would love to do that. Or one of these uh, Star Wars spinoff shows, like yeah. The Mandalorian or something like that. I, I would dive into that. I really wish that opportunity would present itself. I'll, I'll put the thoughts out there. That's that's Please. you know we'll manifest it somehow. And, Please and, do. And just so you know, Matt, every for every time you've been on here, you get a wonderful reception from our from our ravens, uh, from our listeners. They love hearing all about this stuff. Um, and many people have said that that your episodes have been some of their favorite episodes, and definitely some of our you know, uh, most beloved guests. So you're, you're really appreciated uh, within our community. And where, where can people get at you? Like if they want to, I mean, no one should get at you for no. anything because that everything's <laughs> for me. But, you know, <laughs> if, if they want to reach out, uh, where where could they find you? Uh, well, my website, uh, which is Matt Sol Set Deck, um, and my Instagram, which is... Uh, think it's the same i'll link i'll link i'll link them below so don't worry go go below into the description you'll find them there if you I, want to get hold of matt i'm woefully uh 
behind in, in Instagram. I mean, I for a while there, I was posting very regularly, and I have fallen off the cliff with that. Uh, I know that's that's really bad for my career, probably. Um, but I uh, I'm gonna try to do better with my social media, uh, and I have mentioned this in the past. I've I've been pitching a show um, that I would love to get off the ground, which would be yours truly uh, offering people a chance to redecorate their home in the fashion of their favorite film or television show or character. Um, you know, if you want to live like the girls from Sex in the City or uh, have your house look like it's uh, on the planet of Tatooine, uh, that would be the show. Me, uh, folks would write in and uh, give their dream home ideas and the production team and myself would choose which one to, to tackle and then come in and overhaul somebody's house with a Hollywood home improvement and uh, give them a new new space that emulates their favorite show or character. So uh, if any of your listeners out there have uh, ties to a network or a studio uh, that might be interested, uh, I'm all ears. I'm ready to go. That sounds like an awesome project. And also I can imagine Simon's wife is about to run in and disconnect because <laughs> you know that he'll be the first person on that show. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that would that would be perfect. I'll come over and uh, give your give your house the Tree Hill makeover. Yeah, we just got a new house, so it's ready. We need it. We need yeah. it. Make this well, into okay. Karen's cafe or something. I'm down for it. Yeah, nineteen forties all the way through. Do you do you have a basement? In got, your a gar- house? got a garage. Okay, well, I'm just thinking, where can we put the jazz club? <laughs> you know, I want a ri- I want the river court in my garden. If I can have that, that would be great. <laughs> Done. We just I I just think that roll it. You know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I I think that's there's a really cool show idea. I can really mm. imagine that being really popular, uh, especially like on like Netflix or something like that. It'd be a really cool one to every episode a different theme a different person's house like it, exactly. yeah it makes sense it feels like a no no-brainer um and i've had some some positive response in pitching it but um but uh it doesn't doesn't make it past the the initial interest which i i don't know why i mean I, I, again i feel like it's kind of a no-brainer you get a a semi-legendary set decorator like myself to come in and Mm -hmm. redo your house and uh you know get uh if somebody wanted to live in one tree hill world you know maybe uh chad or sophia bush would come on the show with me and make a cameo Mm -hmm. when we debut the new space for the people yes yeah mcgregor comes on uh to the house of the person that wants to live on Tatooine. Uh, you know, I mean, the possibilities are endless. There's yeah, a lot of sure things. It has to happen. <laughs> um, 
You it's know? like it's like pimp my ride, but like not in the nineties, you know, or early two thousand, <laughs> like now, and you know, done, done, you know, to a different standard. I think it would really make sense, definitely. It's Hollywood, so, my house. Yeah, okay. Hollywood, my house. Yes. Hollywood, my house. Right, is that the actual title? Because that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it could be. I was, I've been calling it um, Hollywood Home Improvement, mm. uh, but Hollywood My House or Hollywood My Home. It, you know, I'll, I'll leave the the title to the producers who want to put it together. But nice. Wow. Fingers crossed, touch the wood. I mean, it see, it does seem like a no-brainer. So hopefully that will that will manifest itself. Um, but yeah, again, thank you so much for your time. Can't wait to have the next conversation. Uh, everyone, go follow Matt. Um, and yeah, until the next time. All right, fellas, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate your time as well, and uh, look forward to the next one. Thank you Thank so you. much, Matt. It's great to finally get to meet you as well. So Yeah, you, you too, Dom. Thanks. Be well, fellas. Yeah, you too. see you soon. Thank you. Bye. Take care.